Hello, everyone. I am here with Evan Tyndall. And, you know, Evan and I got to know each other about a year ago. We are in this very small group of, uh, call us emerging managers, who over the beginning of COVID bonded um, and got together, kind of shared our challenges. Evan and I had an especially unique bond because both of us, our wives work, and we have, uh, well, I have two kids. Evan has three, around the same ages. And we were dealing with our first true crash as professional investors while kids are screaming in the background. And, you know, it was fun to uh, have someone who I could like commiserate on all levels with. And, you know, we really got to know each other over this past year. Um, and I've loved hearing uh, Evan's perspective on investing. Evan is one of the founders of Byream and um, he manages portfolios, you know, with a value uh, orientation. Um, and, you know, we'll get into the details of the specific trades that Evan has on today. I think a couple of them are really interesting. Uh, but also beyond that, Evan's background is fascinating. And I think it's some very, very intriguing ground to explore. Um, so welcome, Evan. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I just want to know, I, I, there, I have a, apparently I have a third kid that I don't, I don't know about. <laughs> so I have to go, I have to go searching for that kid. No, yeah, I only have, I only have two kids, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's definitely been good to bond over the, the past year uh, with the, um, with the school stuff for our kids. As you know, I'm sure everyone knows it's a, been a bit of a headache with COVID and it's good to have someone else who's going through the, through the same thing. I, I was, I uh, was joking with someone that, you know, the, the crash in 2020 felt similar to like 0809, except uh, this time I had a, a five-year-old heckling me while I tried to put in trades. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So let me get this straight. Uh, I got six and three, you have five and very young, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, just turned six, actually six and 18 months now. Got it. Okay. So that's what I missed. Uh, that, yeah. that, that middle stage. So you said- yes, yes. We, we missed it. We, we missed the middle <laughs> child. My bad on that one. For no, no, for no lack of trying, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's such a difference with 08. Also, I guess one other big difference is that this happened incredibly fast. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean the, the, yeah, the rebound has obviously been insane. Um, yeah. So, faster than 08. Right. Well, and the crash itself, right? I mean, yeah. I think one year ago today, we might have been down something like 12% on the uh, S&P at the open. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 0809 was more of a slow motion decline for a year and then some big spikes, not the like just complete waterfall downward of, of 2020, which was, I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, if you weren't, didn't have your buy list ready and you didn't make some big moves, I mean, look at, look at Buffett, right? He kind of just sat on his cash and, uh, and, and didn't do much and, you know, for sure the return suffered for it. So it's, it was just wild how, how fast it was. Yeah, no, definitely was one of those situations where you, on the one hand, you're like, uh, you could go in ready to have acted, ready to have been in a position to pounce on a crash. On the other hand, it's like, whoa, this whole COVID thing is completely novel. I really don't know what right. to think about the other, what the other side looks like. Um, and yet, it's nice to be here staring with uh, some light at the end of the tunnel with a vaccine that actually works. Like, who knew that would have been the case? Yeah, I actually got the Pfizer vaccine yesterday. How are you feeling today? Uh, I feel good. I feel fine. My arm is a tiny bit sore, but, uh, yeah, no, no, uh, no problem so far. Yeah. I feel good. It just, it, yeah. Excited to be able to, you know, go do stuff in a month. 
That's right. That's good to hear. Well, congratulations. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you inevitably got into investing? Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in Florida, the, the fine state of Florida, um, and uh, went, went to MIT in 2002, where I met many interesting people, uh, including some, uh, some gamblers. So, you know, you may have, I don't know if you've read Bringing Down the House or 21, which was, um, you know, saw the movie 21, which was all about, you know, the MIT uh, blackjack players. But, uh, but yeah, it was pretty, you know, sort of games of chance that involved math were pretty popular, uh, you know, around in college. And um, I started getting into poker, like my sophomore year. So that was kind of our game you know, sort of five to 10 years removed from the bringing down the house guys. But yeah, I started getting into poker and uh, I would just come back every day and watch a friend of mine play online. Uh, You know, this was back in the very beginning of, um, you know, the internet had obviously been around for 10 years or so, but there was like just, it was during like the party poker, Chris Moneymaker poker boom. I don't know if you remember that. Of course I do. This like, uh, guy, you know, this like Midwest guy from out of nowhere came and won the World Series of Poker main events uh, and kind of set off this boom in poker. Uh, and so we started playing a bunch at MIT. I'd say I was, while I was at MIT, I was probably, uh, I was sort of working two jobs. I was, you know, taking classes and playing poker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the end, I was actually, uh, uh, I took an extra semester to, to do my, my uh, senior thesis. Um, and I, I, I told my mom, I was like, you know, since I've been working the second job, let me just, let me just pay for this extra semester. Like I, you know, let, let, let my other job pay for my, uh, what I'm really supposed to be doing, which is graduating college. <laughs> so clearly um, you were good at poker. Yeah. I mean, I was good enough to, I was good enough that it was, um, you know, I, 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 I knew I was, I was interested in investing at the time, but, uh, I was, you know, when I graduated, the, I, I was very enticed by the idea of being able to play online, you know, make hopefully like a six figure amount of money straight out of college working, you know, my own hours, which was, you know, typically it was like less than five hours a day, just based on like what tables were available. I could travel all over. I traveled to Japan and Thailand and uh, South America and Europe. And, uh, you know, I could do it all on my own kind of schedule. I didn't, and I didn't have to, you know, work a real job. So it was, it was good. I, uh, you know, I, I graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering, but decided to, to play poker full time after, um, after graduating. Uh, and I did that for, uh, for two years and, you know, was able to make some money, put some money away. You know, I, I, I cashed in one big tournament, um, uh, in, a, a, a European poker tour events in the Bahamas. I don't know how, why, how, how that works geographically, <laughs> how they could have a European poker tour event in the Bahamas, but who knows? Um, it's a nice so, excuse to go tropical. Yeah. I mean, it was a great, uh, it was a great, uh, you know, it was a good time, but I was actually one, I was one, I was, no, I was two players off from the final table. Uh, and I had all like a bunch of friends and family that were going to fly in and, uh, and like come to the final table. Blah, blah, blah. I think the winner got $2 million of that, of that tournament. And if I had in my final hand, I mean, this is always how poker is where it's like the hand in a tournament, like the hand you go out on is always like some disaster thing where, you know, of course people don't tell you that they had the similar situations earlier in the tournament. Right. 
but uh, yeah, I, I, the hand I went out, I think I would have been the chip leader if I, <laughs> if I had was it a bad beat, what kind of hand? No, it was like pocket tens versus ace king all in pre before the flop. So it was sort of a coin flip type situation, but, yep. um, but yeah, I was able to make enough money playing poker that I couldn't sit with it all at the table. Right. I mean, in poker, you never want to, um, you know, you have like your bankroll and it's a very like, you know, it, it's actually, it's almost for, it should be a mo- almost like a more intense or equally as intense risk management process as, uh, as investing, because it's all, it's all your own, it's all your own money, right? Like if you lose that, you have no what you, like if you lose your bankroll on poker, you have no job, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, I made enough money that I had by, I could separate some of it from my like poker bankroll and, and, and invest it. And so I had to start figuring out like, you know, how did I want to invest this money? And so, uh, I had some friends from MIT who were like in the investing world. Uh, I had a buddy whose dad ran a hedge fund for, you know, for had been running a hedge fund for like 15, 20 years. And I think he was, um, he, he was working, a uh, internship at Fortress Investment Group at the time, I think. And, uh, and he started getting me into value investing. And it, uh, you know, he sent me a bunch of books to read. And I think I had heard of it just from like my finance and economics classes in, in college that I took. Uh, but I hadn't really gone like deep into it. And it just sort of immediately spoke to me. And I think it, it actually was tied back to how I played, how I learned about poker. So in, in poker, there's, you know, there's a, tons of people that are just in the casinos all day or online, just doing completely irrational things. Like they're just, you know, they're the people at the roulette table that are just like trying to see how many reds have popped up and like <laughs> use that to predict the next one. Right. Like they're, they're, uh, you know, going all in with uh, straight draws when they should be folding. They're like playing, you know, two seven offsuit just to try to hit triple sevens on the flop. You know, they're, they're just doing all sorts of things that aren't really supported by the sort of mathematics of the game. And so there's this, um, there's not like a, a name for it, like value investing, but there's this publishing company called two plus two publishing that makes a series of books that are kind of like the, the, the only at the time, at least they were like the only books that espoused a sort of like rational, like systematic framework for evaluating like how to play poker hands uh, and it was a lot of math. It was a lot of, I mean, simple math, um, like just arithmetic, but, you know, it was a lot of math about like, you know, the percentage of times you make a good hand with a pocket, you know, a pair of tens or a seven or whatever. And like, you know, it would, it would bring that back into how you, like what hands you should play before the flop. And it sort of, you know, it, it went through a sort of somatic rational process of how to play the game. And that had spoken to me back in 2003 about poker. I, I would spend all night like reading the online forums that this publisher had uh, just going through different hands that people would talk about and like, you know, trying to improve my framework for how to think about poker hands. And at the same time, value investing kind of immediately spoke to me. It's like a, it's it, at the end of the day, um, you know, screw the whole like value growth debate, whatever. Value investing is a, it's a rational framework for trying to think about the, the value of a stock and what you should be willing to pay for it. Right. And, 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 you know, half of, or more of the market participants are just literally doing random shit, just buying something because they 
you know, saw some, you know, they saw Elon Musk tweet about it or, you know what I mean? Or uh, absolutely. And, and so, yeah, so value investing kind of immediately spoke to me as a method for kind of <clears throat> rationalizing, a, you know, an insane world, uh, an insane world of gambling, right? It's probably another analogy to <laughs> between poker and investing. Um, so I, I started to kind of go deep on, on value investing uh, and, you know, buying some stocks myself and, you know, in my personal account. And this was all in like 2008. So it was a pretty weird, um, 2007, 2008. So it was a pretty weird time to be, uh, investing my own money, obviously. Um, but that friend, uh, who's, who's now my business partner, Ryan, Ryan Ballantyne is his name. Uh, he, he was actually going to go, he was a couple years younger than me in school. And so, he was graduating and going to go work for his dad at the, at the hedge fund, which was sort of like a hedge fund slash family office. And he basically, uh, I think he, he, he told his dad that he didn't, he refused to go work for his dad if he was going to be the only analyst there. <laughs> so he had to, he, he had to bring at least one other person. His dad had to hire at least one other person. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I got the interview and uh, ended up working there for seven years from 20, 2009 to 2016. Uh, and I was basically the, my, my, my Ryan would work on the sort of qu- some quantitative st- strategies. And I was sort of like the long, short equity analyst uh, there at Ballantine Capital uh, for seven years. And then, uh, yeah, I sort of, um, you know, honed my craft there, you know, reading annual reports, building models, uh, you know, making, you know, portfolio decisions and, you know, helping my boss make portfolio decisions. And, and yeah, and then me and Ryan started our own thing, which is Byron Capital in, in, in 2016. That's awesome. All right. So we're definitely going to get to the investing stuff, but I'd love to like ask some questions about your poker experience sure. and maybe, it, you know, naturally connects to investing. I think it does. Yeah. But you basically reference this idea, like, you know, the quantitative math gains uh, were the allure at MIT, but then in poker, kind of like investing too, there's this behavioral element and it's twofold, right? You have to know who the, I don't know if punter is the right word, uh, who, who the idiot at the table is like Buffett says, right? And you also have to know in yourself, like have really good awareness of how you are feeling, how you're doing. Like I know that phrase going on tilt in poker. So being able to control your emotions and manage to the numbers while, you know, assessing the environment. So maybe yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I think the analogy is that it's really all about, there's, there's kind of two analogies. One is it's all about in poker and in investing, it's all about just trying to stay as rational as possible. Like there's, you know, there's really no room there, at least in my opinion, there's no room for emotions in, in decision-making when you're you know investing in people's money or when you're trying to decide whether you want to, um, you know, call a $1,000 bet by, you know, somebody at, at the poker table. Um, so, you know, rationality is really key. That's the first thing. So you have to be kind of like, you have to step away from, uh, you know, in poker, you have to sort of remove yourself from what happened in previous hands. Uh, so it, it actually, it doesn't matter if you like, just because you've been getting bad cards for an hour doesn't mean that now you should like go in with like three, four offsuit, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just cause you're kind of a, like getting antsy. And so, you know, you have to have, you have to be rational and 
because you need to stay rational and unemotional, you, you have to have patience, right? So you have to wait. And sometimes that means waiting a long time. Sometimes that means doing nothing. Um, and that's actually another theme that's, that's, uh, that, that where poker crosses over to investing. I mean, it, it, the number one mistake in poker is people not being willing to do nothing. They're not willing to just sit there and fold bad hands. Like they're just not willing to do it. Like they came to the casino and they're looking to gamble, right? Uh, and it's, I think it's the same thing in investing, right? Like, you know, you, people are getting their stimulus checks and they're not willing to just put it in some boring thing that's going to make them, you know, maybe five to 10% a year. Uh, Wait, where are you finding five to 10% right now? No. Yeah, no, well, no, I mean like stocks in general, like they're boring yeah. stocks, right? Um, they're not willing to... To, to put it in a stock that they think will earn to five to 10% a year, not guaranteed, but, but just in general, right. They're looking to, they're looking to do something quicker and bigger. Right. And so we, we, I would see that all the time in, uh, in, uh, at the, at the poker table where you have people that are just, you know, not willing to sort of stay rational, stay patient, um, and wait for the, for the good opportunities. I mean, and th- there's, there's actually another, another major, um, similarity between investing in poker is, uh, the, the requirement of punishing the mistakes of other participants, participants in the game, I think. And so it's sort of obvious in poker, right? Cause you're sitting across from someone and you're like, Hey, here's some drunk idiot who just stumbled in off the blackjack table. Who's betting $500. And he, I know that he hasn't looked at his cards yet. I saw him. He didn't look at his cards and that I've seen that happen. I've literally seen that happen at the poker table. Um, so, you know, that, in, in a poker game to win money over time, you have to punish mistakes like that. Right. Um, and I think investing is the same way. I mean, punish has kind of a, uh, maybe a bad connotation, but, um, you know, if, at the end of the day, if a stock is mispriced, it's because people were selling it at that price, right? Like if someone else is making a mistake where they could have just held onto it and, and made a higher return, you know, and generated alpha or made a higher return in the market. Um, and they're, and they're selling it. Right. So the, the, the way to make money is by, you know, rationally punishing the mistakes of, of, of other people. I mean, that's the way to beat the market, I guess. Uh, obviously you can probably just pick random stocks and get the market return or, or pick an index, but that's how, that's the, the way to, to beat the game, I guess. Well, so we've emphasized some of the similarities between poker and investing, but that also makes me think about one of the differences, which is, you know, in poker, when there's that sort of behavior and there's a mistake, the feedback is pretty instantaneous, right? You're only going to have to wait for a couple more cards to come out no matter what, right? Yeah, it's, well, it's, you know, it seems like that, but there are actually, um, so for the guy who, who, for the guy who didn't look at his hand, right? The feedback is instantaneous in that, like from an expected value standpoint, you immediately know that you're winning, right? Like, 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 you know, if you have pocket jacks against a guy who did not look at his hand, you know that you're going to win 80% of the time, 90% of the time, whatever. But there actually are trickier situations in poker where you're not totally sure over what, you know, like a guy, a guy, like there's, there's ways to get bad luck in poker that are, are essentially random, but that are hard to kind of um, tease out from the, the actual results. So an, an example might be, um, you know, cause you don't know what the other person has, right? So an example might be, you know, you have to fold in a tough situation 
and you don't really know if you don't you don't really get any you actually don't get any feedback because you don't see what the other person had right and 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 even beyond that you don't actually see even if you do even if you let's say you call and you lose right like let's say you know you have pocket kings and the guy goes all in and he has pocket aces right and you lose it seems like that's immediate feedback uh, immediate negative feedback right mm-hmm. but it's actually not because he probably would have, if he would have done the same thing with queens, jacks, or tens, pocket tens, then the feedback is the, the feedback is negative in, in terms of that you lost money, but actually you, you made the correct play against his entire range of hands. So like you just got unlucky in that situation that he had aces, um, where he could have easily had queens, jacks, tens, whatever. Uh, and so the feedback is actually misleading in that way. And I think, I think there's actually a corollary there to investing where you can, it's hard to know. It actually is harder than you think to know if you're making the right decisions over, over time, because there is an element of luck involved. And so even, even in the short term, you, you have to be, you have to be aware of how much luck is involved and really sort of rationally try to think about you know, did I make the best decision for the information I had and all the possible ways that it could have played out? Uh, and so I think that there is a corollary there to, to poker. Yeah, that sort of self-awareness is really important in investing for sure. Like understanding whether you're right for the right reasons or right for the wrong reasons. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, a, a perfect example, um, you know, is... Uh, even in my own experience, like we had great results buying stuff in March and April. Um, and I think we were right for the right reasons, but you have to think like, you know, what if we, you know, you do, you should at the end of the day, take a step back and say, say like, well, what if the vaccines didn't work or, you know, what if the shutdown was longer or, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's important to always, you know, it's, it's, it's super easy to tell yourself when you, when you're, when you're right, especially when you're really right, it's easy to tell yourself you were right for the right reasons, but yeah, it's important to take a step back and, and consider that you might've just gotten lucky. Right. You can never prove a counterfactual or you can never argue right. a count. You, you could argue it maybe, but you can't really know for sure. You can't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it is in poker. It's a little bit more, I'd say it's a little bit more provable, but you, yeah, in poker, you also, it's also hard to know for sure that you didn't just get lucky, not in terms of the way that the cards come out on the board, but also like what the other player had you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing I wonder about with you in poker in particular, like, do you have a element of the game that you felt was your strength versus another that you felt was your weakness? And I'm asking this so that when we play poker, I could exploit it, but because <laughs> I'm genuinely curious how you frame that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's probably, I think, I, I think even if I tried to tell you, it'd be like me trying to exploit one of your, your weakness in hockey. Probably <laughs> just, it's not going to, it's like, if your weakness is stick handling and I can't even skate well, it's just not going to work trying to exploit <laughs> yep. that, trying to exploit that weakness. Um, no, I mean, I think my, yeah, I, I, I was a pretty, I would say I was a pretty balanced player. I didn't, I wasn't like super aggressive or, um, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty methodical. Um, I think, I think the, the, I think the hardest part of, of poker to really, uh, get, and this is not, this is not really super related to investing, but the hardest part of poker is perfecting when the time is right to make like really big bluffs. 
um, and having the kind of, and having the, the balls to do it. Cause it's not, it's not easy to pull that off, especially when like the main, the main way you make money in poker is by being more conservative than the, than the other players. Um, but every once in a while you have to really, uh, it's, it's good to make a big bluff, but it's hard to, that I'd say that was probably the, the hardest thing for me would be, you know, betting out, you know, thousands of dollars in a situation where I was losing, but I knew the right decision was to make a big bluff and I wasn't sure if it was going to work. That's probably the hardest that that's like, that's probably the hardest uh, skill in poker to really, to really learn. I think. Well, so that raises one more question for me, right? Especially as you know, in COVID we've been debating engaging with the world digitally versus, you know, physically, right? right? Everything moving online versus brick and mortar. And in mm-hmm. poker, I think there's a real distinction between how the game's approached when you're at a casino table in person, looking in the eyes. Yes. That, that, is def- yeah, that is definitely true. I think um, it was, yeah, it, was, it actually was always easier for me to, um, to make the big bluff online. You know, it's a lot easier to slide a piece of software out to $10,000 <laughs> to, make, to make a big bluff when you have nothing than it is to actually stack chips equivalent to $10,000 in front of you, right? Like, you know, you're worried, like, are your hands going to, uh, you know, something weird going to happen with your hands? Um, although actually pro tip, if someone's hands are shaking when they're putting out the chips, usually they have a massive hand. <laughs> usually they're nervous because they know they're winning and there's no way they can lose and they just can't keep their hand. Trembling <laughs> with greed, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're trembling with greed. Yeah. That's 90% of the time they're trembling with greed. Yeah, well, so that's a very different experience. I'd imagine there's some people for whom it's exactly the opposite, where being in person, where you could kind of like dress up your intents with other sorts of behaviors, whether it's like sipping on your drink or... And and I think there's, yeah, there's people that would, at at the live poker table, there was like mostly, I mean, well, it was mostly men playing anyway, but... Um, there were people that were kind of get into like some type of like macho thing where they're trying to like make like, it's like social and they're drinking and they're like kind of trying to make people think they're cool or whatever. Uh, and so there can be that kind of thing that can make people do wild, wild things and make crazy bluffs and stuff that wouldn't really happen online. Um, but then, I, but then I think it, it's, it's, you know, it just depends on the person. I think like there's some people who, probably would get embarrassed to like lose large amounts of money in person, but then, but online they can just, they would just do whatever. Cause it seems more like play money. And so they were just, you know, they would just make a big bet or a big bluff or a big whatever and just not, and just not care. I think that's, I think that's the case for some people as well. Well, you're making my job easy here because you're teeing up a segue. Like, <laughs> is there an ephemerality to being able to do this stuff digitally behind the veneer of a computer screen uh, like in poker, bluffing big online might not seem yeah. that different than some of the behavior going on via Robinhood in investing, right? I mean, yeah, I certainly think that if people were, um, I, I think if people were taking 14 $100 bills down to the, uh, the local TD Ameritrade and, get, and buying it on like a next day call option and they had to see it like evaporate in real time, I think that would probably change the way that they were thinking about, you know, using that stimulus money, right? Like, whereas with now it's, you know, obvi- you know, with Robinhood, you have the, you know, there's balloons and there's confetti and, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit, 
it's definitely a little bit more addicting and it's a little bit, uh, you know, less embarrassing to lose a thousand dollars if you're just gambling in an online app than if it is, than if it was, if it was in person, I think. Yeah. So to really get into it, I mean, the proximate cause of us being like, let's sit down and record a podcast was you published a fantastic letter called, I think the title was anatomy of a bubble. And in your tweet introducing that, someone responded. It was like, Evan, you need to do a podcast. And I was like, okay, (laughs) you know what? I can make this happen. Let's let's do it. So you have demand of one. Yeah, there you go. Well, so we know there will be one listener no matter what happens here. That's right. That's right. Yes. Um, and you know, I figured too, like I I really enjoyed reading your perspective. And, you know, I uh wanted to hear you explain some of the stuff in a little more detail and maybe, you know, get into it. But Talk about your breakdown of the landscape, the buildup for the anatomy of the bubble. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it starts from, I would say it starts from really uh, looking at the, the data on, um, you know, where baskets of stocks have, have traded over the past few years and like where, um, you know, quantitatively cheap and quantitatively expensive stocks have have been trading, and so we we actually run some uh, a couple smaller quantitative strategies that um, that look at you know metrics of valuation and um, you know the spread between value and growth stocks. And what we've seen is you know throughout the past few years a just constant uptick in the the valuation of the highest, of, of, you know, the most uh, highly, most richly valued stocks in the market, the, the divergence between those stocks and the quote unquote um, value stocks, which are, you know, the cheapest basket of stocks. Uh, and so we, in the letter, we, you know, we published this graph called the, what we call the value spread, which is really just a combination of, and, and, and I think if you did PE or anything, it would look basically the same, but it's the, what, what we use is sort of a, a mashup of different value metrics like EV to EBITDA, uh, PE, book to market, and things like that. Um, and what you see is that there's really outside of 1999. I mean, it's there's never been a, a larger divergence between the the cheapest stocks in the market and the um, and the most richly valued stocks. Um, you know, not, and that doesn't mean obviously that doesn't mean that uh, you know there's going to be bad returns for, um, you know, bad returns for those richly valued stocks or good returns for the value stocks for the, for the lower valued stocks. But, um, you know, it's, but it is exactly what it is, you know, what was happening at the peak in 1999, which, uh, obviously everyone knows that that, you know, uh, was right in front of a, a really bad period for, uh, for growth stocks relative to, to value. Um, and I think, you know, so, over the past five years in, in my, uh, you know, what we call like the fundamental value strategy, uh, which is sort of the ba- bottom up um, stock picking strategy. You know, we had, you know, we'd had a few shorts, uh, you know, either to hedge long positions or, you know, you know, every once in a while we put on a merger arbitrage situation or like one off, uh, you know, sort of alpha, hopefully alpha generating shorts that we came across. Um, but we didn't have a, a large basket of stock of, of shorts. Um, and part of that was because we didn't think there was that many overvalued, you know, easily, you know, stocks that we could easily determine are, are, are overvalued. Um, but 
you know, as the, you know, the past few years have gone on, it, it's just, you know, the, the number of stocks that we think are just absurdly valued has just gone, had got to the point to where, you know, last uh, fall, we put on a, a basket short position um, against our, against our long book of, uh, of, of some of these stocks, which just seemed to us, you know, representative of, of a huge bubble in, in these types of, uh, in these types of names. And so it's it, like, I think it's actually, when you look at the individual companies, a lot of them are more compelling than even the sort of the high level, you know, growth versus value spread would kind of even imply uh, in terms of how, how, how absurd the valuations are for some of these things. Well, yeah. One of the things I loved in your letter was its explanation of the landscape, how you break it down to the transcenders, the contenders, and the pretenders. So I'd yes. imagine what you're talking about here in this basket that you're short is kind of overweight, uh, short the pretenders more so than others. Yeah, I would say it's, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we, we're, we're short a couple of the, of the, you know, what we'd call the contenders, like for example, Tesla, just based because it's, you know, we think obviously there's a real business there. Um, we don't, we're not part of the group that, you know, thinks that Tesla is going bankrupt. Uh, we weren't short <laughs> Tesla three years ago. Um, but we just think the valuation is just so far out of whack with uh, the, the actual prospects for the company that it deserves to be shorted. Um, but yeah, a majority of the stuff that we're short is in the kind of pretenders um, realm of things that, you know, we just, uh, you know, things that, things that a lot of times just don't have any, don't have any revenue. Um, you know, whether it's, I mean, a, maybe a perfect example is, uh, and uh, this is something that some people are probably aware of, but, you know, CCIV, which is the, uh, the SPAC that will, you know, I guess eventually become uh, Lucid Motors is, you know, trading at a $7 billion, I think it's $7 billion market cap right now for a company that the only thing, the only thing it is, is a future $2 billion investment in, in a, in a company that has no revenues. So like, you know, it's like you're investing, you're paying $3 for every $1, three and a half or $4 almost. And it's at one point they were paying $5 um, for every $1 that you're getting invested into this company, Lucid Motors that again, has no revenue and may be a fine company, but is, um, you know, but isn't worth three t- instantly three times what they're going to be putting into it. I mean, it's absurd. And so maybe, you know, that's a good example of a pretender, but define uh, the transcenders, like what they are and who might populate that group and give us a sense of how to anchor each of these other groups against, you know, the, the highest order. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the, the transcenders are um, really the, you know, the companies that are sort of like the fan mag companies that are just, you know, tens of billions of revenue, um, obvious network effects that really no one would, would argue against, um, you know, high profit margins, high returns on capital. Um, I mean, I'd even put probably Netflix in there, even though obviously it hasn't like, you know, done nearly the margin that some of these other companies do, but, um, has, has, you know, the growth and the network effect and sort of the flywheel, and, you know, we've actually, we've owned some of these things, like when they get kind of knocked down. So we owned, we owned Apple in 2017. Uh, we owned Facebook in, in, in 2019. And I can sort of talk about how we got into those names if you want, because I think it's actually would be a good, um, 
sort of explanation of how we think about things on the, on the long side. Um, Let's but, do that. Okay. Yeah. So how, how we think about things on the long side, actually in kind of the short side, but um, you know, most of our time is spent on the long book historically is we basically think that, um, you know, mispricings in the market are caused by, are, are caused by irrational behavior. And that's sort of kind of a tautology almost. But what we like to do is we try to look for stocks that are being affected by what we think are, you know, our cognitive biases that people have that, that are like known. Um, an example is uh, something called availability bias, which is when, you know, you just focus on the, the most, the shiny object, you know, the most salient piece of news, like regardless of whether it actually affects the business. Right. Um, you know, like a perfect example, like on the, on the short side, I mean, the CCIV, right. The shiny object is, it's an EV company. It's an investment in an up and coming EV company, right? Electric vehicles company. And the true story is, okay, you're paying three times the investment price and the company has no revenue. Okay. Um, but in the case of, uh, in the case of Facebook, uh, in, in, in 2000, 2018, we saw the stock trade off almost 50%, uh, based on the Cambridge Analytica scandal, right. Where people were worried that, you know, they were losing their personal, you know, their personal data, and you know these evil corporations were using it to tilt the election and blah blah blah. Um, but regardless of, you know, what the true story was behind that scandal, like no one actually cared about it. Like no one stopped using Facebook. People would talk about it on Twitter, you know, hashtag delete delete Facebook. But if you look at even a like. A, a graph of like the Google trends data on delete Facebook, it showed like a tiny spike for a month and then was gone. Um, and if you looked at their quarterly results, their usage was fine. Uh, not to mention the fact that a huge majority of their users are not in the United States. Like, like people in Malaysia aren't, you know, watching CNN coverage of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, right? Like they're not, they're not caring about that. Um, and so that's the kind of, you know, sort of mass delusion, cognitive bias where people are looking at the sort of the shiny object of this, you know, this news story and thinking like, oh, you know, let's, let's sell the stock down to, you know, 14, 15 times earnings for a company that had been growing revenue at 30 to 50% every single year since they started publishing finance, since they started generating revenue. Like you can look back at the income statement from 2007, every single year was 30 to 35%. And in the early years, it was a hundred percent. Right. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we like to look for those sort of mass delusion, you know, cognitive bias type scenarios that we feel like where we can articulate, like, here's why people are doing irrational stuff with respect to this stock. Uh, here's like, here's like the cognitive bias. Here's why it's making them sell and, and, and look at the price that it's resulting in. And so we feel like that process helps us. It's, you know, it's sort of a twist on the kind of variant perception uh, thesis of Michael Steinhardt, if you're familiar with that, uh, where he would require his analysts to have, you know, a, a, a variant view like to the market to, before they would buy something. Um, and we feel like that gives us kind of a sort of a repeatable process where we can find stuff that's not just not just trading cheaply, but trading cheaply for the wrong reason, I guess. Uh, and you know, hopefully that lets us you know avoid avoid value traps and actually own things that's undervalued rather than just 
rather than just cheaply valued. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, my mind latched to this. You said no one argues against these companies. Obviously, I, I understand what you meant. But if I recall a story that you told in our group one of these days was about Apple and you were long Apple and there was a noted uh, short seller who had a different perspective and you tried to... Um, oh, yes, 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 yes. Right. That's funny. Yeah. So um, it's funny because I actually don't think Apple is cheap now, but back in 2017... Yeah, so Apple's another great example of kind of how this, our, our methodology, you know, can work or, you know, how we try to make it work to find um, undervalued stocks. But yeah, so Apple um, in, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017 was trading at like, you know, I think a less than 10 times PE if you backed out the net, the net cash. Uh, and we thought that, you know, people were just, people were not being rational with respect to this company. Like they, they saw it as uh, a hardware company. Uh, And again, this is another example of availability bias where people are looking at, uh, where people are latching onto like the obvious fact without kind of thinking about, um, you know, what lies beneath. And so people were looking at, Hey, when you go to this Apple store, what do you buy? You buy a physical piece of hardware, you buy a phone, right? So therefore, this is a hardware company and, you know, it, it should have a hardware company valuation. It should be valued at eight to 10 times earnings. Their profits will probably go away because no hardware company has sustained, you know, 40% gross margins over time. Um, and yeah, and there was a, a value investors club uh, write-up uh, where the person uh, who was you know, a popular Twitter figure at the time who shall remain nameless, I guess, um, posted this short thesis where it was basically like, hey, Apple is garbage because hardware companies at, at this price, because hardware companies don't sustain their margins. Look what happened to Nokia um, and look what happened to BlackBerry. And therefore, uh, you know, Apple is also a phone company so that its profits are going to go away. Um, and so it was actually kind of the perfect uh, foil, I guess, the, the perfect you know thing to kind of um, you know, hone our thesis again. So we made it, did a long blog post kind of tearing down that, um, that, that short thesis. And the crux of it was, listen, it seems like it's a hardware company, but people don't buy, if they, if they were buying it just for the hardware, they probably would buy the latest Android phone that has LTE and a, and a you know, more, a better camera and all these other things. They're buying it for, because they're used to the software they don't want, they want to be able to FaceTime their kids. You know what I mean? Like they want to be able to use iMessage. They want to be able to, um, you know, navigate around the device in the same way they always did. Uh, they want to be able to have the latest iOS software, uh, and not have like this like fragmented Android software system. So in our view, they were buying it for the software. The, the margins were software margins the attachment was a software attachment in terms of, you know, churn off of the platform. Um, it, it, it was going to be, it, it was becoming a platform in terms of, you know, the sale of apps and music and other, uh, you know, revenue streams that are, you know, explicitly software revenues. And so we just thought there's no reason why this should trade at eight times earnings. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was kind of the, the, and so that was, you know, that was the, the bias that people had was this, um, you know, this bias about around, you know, it must be a hardware company if they sell hardware when it, that wasn't really the, the core economic story of the company. Um, unfortunately, 
you know, we, we bought it eight times earnings or 10 times earnings and sold it at 20. We didn't really think it was going to get to 35 times earnings. <laughs> While those earnings were still growing, right? So it's... It, it, right, exactly. While those earnings, yeah, the earnings were still growing. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's the stock has done unbelievably well. Um, well, I was very much more in the hardware camp. So I got that totally wrong, but had no skin in the game, just a pontificator sitting here blasting out tweets. But... Right. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, and the thing was, if you looked at uh, the, uh, the other, the other, I think, I mean, there was a, a few different tells that you could look at. The other, the other factor was that they were, cons- they were generating, you know, even for their, even for the, the laptops, they were, ge- they were generating, you know, significant margins way above the industry. And it's because people want, people would buy the laptops for the software, right? Like they're the only, they're the only, uh, you know, computer manufacturer or, or, um, phone manufacturer, this is before, um, you know, uh, Xiaomi and a couple other ones have gotten into software in a, in a big way, but they're the, really the only ones that were selling it bundled. Right. So, um, yeah, I think if you, you know, really thought hard about, uh, you know, kind of the breakout of the pricing, you know, you, you would see that it was, you know, hardware was only a, a portion of the price that people were actually paying. And for what it's worth, I almost caved because I had major FOMO as Twitter Spaces was getting launched and it was not available on Android. And I wanted to see what the experience was all about. But maybe let's take a step back to the value versus growth thing and talk about something that you mentioned in your letter about how it all ends and how it all resolves. Um, Obviously, it never ends permanently. You know, the market keeps going, infinite game, et cetera. But you talked about a shelling point in your letter. So what what exactly is that? And how do you think this whole situation does inevitably resolve? So a shelling point is a potential point of coordination between multiple participants in a game where they don't necessarily um, know that they're, or they're not necessarily communicating. So um, an example in one of my, uh, econ classes at MIT. And I actually, my business partner had to teach me the phrase shelling point. I'd, I'd heard of the concept, but not the actual name. But uh, one of one of the uh, professors in our one of our econ classes, um, just to kind of sort of demonstrate this idea, would have us, uh, they, they basically, she stopped the class and she said, okay, everyone, let's assume we need to meet up on uh, one year from now, roughly one year from now. Uh, or I think she might have been any point between you know one month to one year from now. It could be in any place in the entire world, any time. And and just think about okay, where should we meet? You, you don't get to talk to anyone in the class, and you're trying to coordinate about where you should meet, right? So it, it, you're kind of trying to think about what other people are thinking about, and use that to and what they think that you'll think about, and like what in what way can we sort of coordinate here? Um, and, and so there were usually, usually uh, there were a couple points of attempted coordination. One was like the like New Year's Eve in Times Square or Grand Central Station uh, coordination point, which I thought was interesting. Um, and, uh, and the other was like, you know, everyone meet up in the same classroom the exact same time that it was then exactly one year from, from them. Um, and, but there was a lot like within, within those two things, like a lot of people picked those two, like one of those two or three, um, you know, potential times and places. 
And I think the point of that ex exercise is that, you know, people can coordinate pretty well without talking about it, right? Um, and I think a, a, a Ponzi scheme uh, is, you know, or a pyramid scheme is sort of, it's, it's sort of the same, right? You're kind of saying, um, you know, hey, let's, uh, let's all invest in this thing or let's all, um, you know, participate in this uh, chain letter knowing that there's no real value in it necessarily, but, you know, knowing that if we all coordinate, we can kind of make it work for a period of time, right? Uh, and so you, you, you find these, um, you know, you find these points of coordination in the, in the stock market as well. So, I mean, I think GameStop is a perfect example of that where, um, I mean, except in, the, in, the, in GameStop, they obviously have been, you know, communicating about it, right? So they have been... Um, yeah, it's explicit. Uh, yeah, it's explicit communication. I'm not, I'm not sure if that... Um, disqual I'm not sure if that disqualifies as a shelling point or not, but uh, either way, it's a, you know, it's a well-communicated, um, you know, cooperative game, basically, where as long as everyone keeps playing, uh, you know, it the, the game can go on. Uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like a game of musical chairs, basically, where no one's, no one's sitting down, no one's even trying to sit down. They know there's not enough chairs there, <laughs> but they haven't, they're not, they're, they're all kind of in agreement that no one's going to try to sit down. Yet. Um, so, you know, and I think in the letter, we called it a, we called it a Ponzi party, right? So it's like a, it's like a, you know, Ponzi scheme um, where, you know, everyone's, uh, you know, everyone's communicating together. They all are kind of in on the, you know, Ponzi scheme is usually like only one person is really in on the, the scheme, but a Ponzi, a Ponzi party, uh, maybe to coin a new phrase is like where it's a Ponzi scheme, but just where everyone's in on it. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard to know uh, where any one particular scheme like that ends, you know, like in the case of GameStop, it's impossible to know when it's going to end. And the insane thing about GameStop is that it's, it's come back again, right? Like, like the idea of it ending and people seeing that it ended badly once and then coming back again for a second round is kind of wild to us. Um, but, you know, we're at the end of the day, we're happy to bet against it continuing too long. But um, I think with uh, stocks that have this type of Ponzi party, really the gravitational pull on the, on the price of the stock is, is just time, you know, like it, it, time just removes chairs from the game of, uh, from the game of musical chairs. Cause every, every day that, uh, or every month that GameStop trades at a $15 billion valuation, um, you know, people get more and more worried that the Ponzi party is not going to go along any, any farther. It's not going to go along any further. Not going to go further. And if you're not making money investing in GameStop from 200, what is the you know what's the point of having your money stored there? I mean, everyone knows that's not a long-term store of value at 250 dollars per share. Like you can't just like put your money in GameStop at 250 and forget about it and like retire on it later, right? Like you know that you have to sell at some point. So. Just the fact that everyone knows that um, is, again, it's just like over, it's just, you know, the, the musical chairs are being pulled away um, one after the other. And, uh, you know, at some point people are going to start trying to sit down, I think. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because when I think about GameStop too, I mean, first off with the shelling point, I like how there's both this time and space element to it. So it's not 
you have to be right about two things. Yeah, right, um, you can't right. just be right about one. But the other thing, wh- what you say about GameStop there in the end, like, um, you know, I was pretty vocal about how dangerous the situation was from a financial perspective. And people hit me on Twitter with, oh, I know I'm going to lose money, maybe. I don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm sticking it to the man, right? That's why I'm putting my money into this. And it's not about whether they think it's a store of value or not. There's a whole narrative that's just completely untethered right. from the actual story itself. And there's a zeitgeist around it that pulls people in, irrespective of staying rational like you were talking about in poker. Well, yeah. And I think the interesting thing about that is in terms of how long it's going to go on. I mean, tens of millions of shares have already been covered, right? At, at, at losses for people, you know, like the short interest on GameStop has gone from, you know, what was it? 90 million shares or it was, yeah. I mean, according to Bloomberg, it's, it's gone from 70 million shares to 14 million. Right. So, you know, the man has already been stuck. Uh, and so I, I wonder like if the man has already been stuck, like, are they still sticking it to the man by just holding it at like 200 to 250? Um, I mean, the man has already been stuck and there's, you know, there's not that much more that you're going to be able to stick it to the man. So I, I wonder if that, um, if people who are kind of thinking along those lines, it seems pretty likely to me that they're going to kind of move on to more interesting, uh, more interesting games at some point. But um, you know, but we'll see. I mean, it's, it's uh, certainly if you're trying to buy stock and sticking it and stick it to the man from current at current prices, you're going to, I think you're going to pay. I think people are going to pay for that desire. It's inevitable, right? No way around that. Yeah. So maybe let's talk about a couple of stocks you're long today. Um, Anyone that stands out first, I think you recently published a note on Kojiko and that's, you know, an interesting different situation. Yeah. I mean, Kojiko, yeah, Kojiko is interesting. Yeah. We can talk about Kojiko. Um, Kojiko is a Canadian cable company and we think that it is undervalued because uh, of something we call representativeness bias, which is kind of a wordy, I don't don't really like how that uh, word um, flows off the tongue. Uh, but basically we, we think people are kind of bucketing it, um, you know, trading it as a basket with other Canadian telecom companies, even though it's got a pretty different, um, profile to how they make money. So Kojiko is basically a, a pure play cable company in, uh, in Canada. And they, they make the majority of their margin and profits off of broadband internet, just like pure play cable companies do in the US, whether it's um, Charter or, uh, or Cable One or, or companies like that. So, um, you know, we think broadband internet is a great business. I mean, it's, it's essentially in, in many of Kojiko's homes, they are, uh, you know, the sole internet provider at more than five megabits per second. And they have, they have some competition from uh, BCE, which is Bell Canada, uh, which is like the legacy tel- you know, telecom uh, company, te- telephone service provider. And so in some cases, uh, BCE has upgraded their, uh, their network to fiber to the home. And, and in those cases, it's sort of, you know, it's a duopoly. They both, uh, they, they both have, you know, substan- you know they both have 
really good internet products. You can get one gigabit per second from Kojiko for 90 bucks a month, uh, or you can pay a little bit more. You can pay 130 bucks a month and get uh, 1.5 gigabits per second um, from, uh, from BCE. But at the end of the day, it's, it's still a duopoly. It's still a good business. That's like, uh, that's like probably 40% of their footprint and the rest of it. Uh, it's, they're the only, you know, BCE will offer five to 10 megabits per, per second because it's, um, because it's DSL, but you know, Kojiko is the only one offering higher speeds in those places. And so, um, we think that, it, you know, it trades at like 10, 10 or 11 times free cash flow. And if you look at, you know, certainly cable one or, uh, or charter, I mean, on an EV to EBITDA basis, I think charter trades for 11 or 12 times, um, you know, uh, Altice trades for 10 times. Cable one trades for like 15 or 16 times EBITDA. And, you know, that's, that's U S investors kind of recognizing that it's broadband internet is a good business. It's not really like more complicated than that. I don't think, uh, especially where you don't have, um, other, you know, you don't have, uh, fiber overbuilds in your entire footprint, which basically none of these cable companies do. Um, and so we think that, you know, investors and, and maybe especially Canadian investors, cause this, you know, this company isn't sort of well-known in the U S are kind of bucketing the company with, you know, with BCE or with Rogers mm. or with other, um, Canadian telecom companies mm. that have, uh, different exposures. So like in the case of, in the case of Rogers, it's not a, it's not a terrible business and they do, and they do, they do have exposure to cable internet similar to Kojiko, but the wireless business is also a huge portion of their revenues. They actually have way more wireless subscribers than they do, um, than they do wireline subscribers, you know, fixed broadband. So we think that that's a, you know, a way worse business because there's just more competition, right? You have to buy up spectrum. There's three or four competitors, um, you know, it's not that hard to enter a, a, a given area as long as you have the spectrum. You know, it's a lot easier to build one um, macro cell tower than it is to dig up streets to wire everyone with fiber, right? Uh, so, and, and that's why in the U.S., companies like Verizon or AT&T trade for, you know, seven, eight times EBITDA and, um, and Cable One trades for 15 times, right? It's just a, it's just a different quality of business, I'd say. Um, but, they, they, you know, they basically don't seem to have figured that out, I guess, in Canada. Um, or maybe this Kojiko is kind of falling through the, you know, falling through the cracks because it's a little bit smaller market cap. Um, but uh, yeah, we think that it's, you know, investors are kind of lumping it in with these other, these other companies when it's really, a, it's sort of similar to the Apple situation where people are like, oh, it's just a hardware company. It should trade at like 10 times free cash flow. People are like, eh, that's just a boring telecom. It should trade at 10 times or, you know, seven or eight times EBITDA. But really it's a, you know, a, a, a cable internet provider with uh, basically a monopoly and a lot of its footprint. It gets 40% of its um, profits from the U.S. actually, uh, unlike the other Canadian companies. Uh, and so we think it's a really good business and should trade it like 15 to 20 times uh, earnings probably. Yeah, I generally love those situations where something's like easy to label, but the label need not apply. Yeah, we call that yeah, we call that representativeness bias where it's like people are just kind of like thinking that thinking that it's representative of the group when it's really if you look if you dig deeper it's you know really not. You could also say it's it could be considered like availability bias where it's like people are just looking at like the obvious like the most superficial 
um, level of, you know, analysis and not really like, and not really digging deeper. And so there is one other wrinkle to this story, right? There's like a game theory ownership angle, which maybe brings, closes the loop with the poker. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so there's, right. So there's also a potential, there's an interesting situation where um, Rogers owns a, like a, around a third of the, of the business. And uh, they've wanted, it's been rumored, I mean, it, it almost was explicit, I think, over time, that they wanted to own the whole thing. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's similar to the US where, you know, a lot of the cable companies have, have merged over time. And they're always trying to, you know, they prefer to, to, to buy up competitors rather than, um, you know, rather than overbuild just because of the economics. Um, it's a lot easier to buy a customer than it is to steal it from someone with a, that's providing good service, right? Um, in the, but in the case of Rogers, uh, they actually put a bid out um, on, uh, on Kojiko in the fall and they were structuring it as, uh, you know, Rogers was going to buy the Canada business and Altice was going to buy the, the U.S. business, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, at the time, I think Kojiko was trading for, um, depending on which one you looked at, we, we owned the holding company, which trades at a little bit of a discount, like a 15, 20% discount. But Kojiko was trading at, the Kojiko holding company was trading at $80 per share. And... <laughs> Rogers and Altice, their first bid was for like 115. And then they, even though Kojiko engaged not at all, they basically told them to go screw themselves. <laughs> they said, we're not for sale. We don't care about your bid. Um, and this is, this, this can happen because the, the family controls the votes. Um, but they, then Altice and Rogers started negotiating against themselves. And they're like, well, okay, if you don't like 115, we'll pay you. 123 or whatever it was, or 125. But basically, you know, there, there was a bid for, you know, 125 on, uh, on the Kojiko entity um, with absolutely no, um, you know, back and forth with the company. So we think, and that's also, they were also offered an absolutely massive premium to the family for the family shares. So I think they were willing to pay like five or six times the like fair market value to the family shares to get them to sell. So like they didn't actually even put all of their potential like premium into like the price they're offering for the shares for like the, 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 the tradable shares, if that makes sense. So I, I think that they, I think Rogers could easily have paid, you know, 150 or $160 per Kojiko share, Rogers and Altice combined, 150 or 160. I mean, they offered 150, I think, for the CCA, the operating company shares. Um, but I think if you run the math, they could have offered, you know, 150, 160, or maybe even a little bit more um, to buy up, uh, you know, all of the, you know, the Kojiko Holdco and uh, Opco shares, no problem. Um, but, you know, the, 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 C, the management team told them to go pound sand. So, <laughs> Then um, so they actually went and bought Shaw, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Um, so it looks like Rogers. I mean, it's it's it will be interesting to see how they how that gets handled from a competitive standpoint in terms of antitrust in Canada. Um, still learning about how that what's going to work. But um, you know, they they paid I think a seventy percent premium to what where Shaw was trading. Shaw was also trading at like seven or eight times EBITDA, um, and. Uh, you know, because if you go from you go from 
you know, you go from eight times EBITDA to 11 on a levered, on a levered entity. And it's a really big uh, premium on the, on the market price of the stock. Right. Um, and so they're, they, if they end up owning Shaw, they're going to be massive. They're still going to own a third of Kojiko. Um, I, I know some people say that they think it's less likely that they would end up buying Kojiko over time because, you know, they're going to put on some debt and, and whatnot to, to buy Shaw. Um, but I mean, the, the price that they would have to pay for Kojiko because it's so much smaller is like, will be like half of a turn of EBITDA. So it will be like, you know, one year of, one year of, of free cash flow uh, or half a turn of EBITDA to, to, to buy Kojiko. Um, so I don't really, I think my, my personal opinion is, you know, five, 10 years down the line, Rogers ends up buying it. Even though like right now the CEO says we're never selling. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. Like, if you look at what people, we actually owned, we owned Fox back in the day. Um, and we said, we said, you know, people say that this is a, um, you know, sort of a boring, uh, boring cable company and look at all this cord cutting, et cetera, et cetera. But if you actually looked under the hood, they had a lot of other interesting assets that, um, you know, were just starting to generate uh, profits. Um, and people said, Oh, you know, uh, Rupert Murdoch would never sell. Like he's, you know, he would be, um, you know, against the way he's operated the company for a long time and he's so arrogant and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if someone's, if someone is willing to make you, 50% 50% richer than you are currently and you don't want to run the company on a day-to-day basis. Like you, you probably take the money, right? Like there's, you know, and there's all sorts of interesting pressures on, uh, on different members of the family over time. Right. So like in the case of Kojiko, you have Louis Audet, who's the current um, chairman, I believe, and the son of the founder. And then you have, you know, the, like the, uh, the Audet, yeah, I think it's Audet, um, you know, company that sort of holds their voting shares and then family members own pieces of that, right? So it's like Louis is in control of that company now, but like over time, it's actually the, the economic exposure goes out to multiple people who may not all share the same opinion five or 10 years down the line and may start to put pressure on him to sell if, if he's offered a market price of, you know, if the, if the company's still trading at seven times EBITDA, and people are still willing to offer 11 times, you know what I mean? Which is, could be almost a double in the stock. Yeah. So uh, what do you think is the family's angle? Do you think it's more on the self-preservation side of things? Or do you think it's a little bit of let's close this gap with U.S. multiples and then we'll talk uh, sale? Yeah. I mean, I think they, that's, that's pretty, I mean, they've been pretty mum. I mean, they've said nothing. They basically, they've not said like, oh, it wasn't a good price. They've just said we're not for sale, which of course is never really true right? Like almost everything is for sale at the right price. Like even, um, you know, even if you think about the, the chairman himself, if he was being purely selfish, um, you know, he gets paid a couple, you know, he gets paid $2 million a year and the family stake is, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. So, you know, if he can, you know, increase that by 50%, that's a pretty good incentive eventually for him to do that. I mean, I think, I think what they would say is, um, even, you know, even 10 or 11 times EBITDA doesn't fully give them credit for like the growth that they see in their U S assets, um, which I think, which has, you know, basically, uh, tripled EBITDA over the last, you know, 
six or seven years through a combination of organic growth and um, and acquisitions. So I think I think what he would say is, you know, we're gonna, still going to see a lot of growth in U.S. business. We can still grow this for a long time, and you know. I don't think he would put this ending to that sentence, but, and then we can sell for 11 times EBITDA if we want to. Um, I mean, I think there also is some, 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 you know, some family pride in the business, obviously, but you know, there, there's, there's a price on that, especially the older, um, especially the older that he gets. Cause I, as far as I know, he's the only family member that's currently like involved in running the business. So I guess it's probably, my guess would be that it's a lot more of, you know, kind of his baby than, uh, than it would be for, you know, his nieces and nephews and whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, in some ways, maybe, maybe I'm going to butcher the poker analogy, but <laughs> between the valuation being fair and the optionality of some resolution uh, on the M&A front, you like flopped a good uh, pair, but you're also trying to draw a straight on the turn and then the river. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think it's, Right, it's maybe a, a situation where you know you're you're you've got a good hand right now. Yeah, you've got a pair and a flush draw or something. Where you've got a good hand now, you might even be winning right now. Um, you're fine with taking it to the end, uh, but then you also have a you know potential situation where if you get a little bit lucky, you could really make uh, you could really make a a, a killing. That sounds about yes. right. Well, yes. Evan, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so thankful that you uh, joined me here for a one-on-one conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we got the prompt over Twitter to, to do this. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I'm, I'm glad we went through with it. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would have necessarily reached out without, that, without our uh, one guaranteed customer, uh, <laughs> you know, knowing that he would watch it. But uh, yeah, we'll have to We'll have to try to see if we can tease out from whatever tracking you guys have to see if you actually ended up watching it. But <laughs> exactly right. Maybe just ask him on Twitter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. All right. Well, thank you, Evan. This has been great. Yep. Thanks, Elliot.